Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, if you could find your place in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at what I believe to be a somewhat familiar passage today at the end of Matthew 9. I want to tell you a story uh, about a young man. I've got his picture here for you to... Oh, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not him. Go to the next one. Yeah, there we go. I tell you, John Travolta's everywhere. But this is not John Travolta. These are five men uh, from the late 40s, the 1940s, going into the early 50s. And if you'll look at the second gentleman from the left, his name is Jim Elliott. This was a small mission team that was headed to Ecuador to minister to the Aka Indians. And they went, they were young men, they were in their 20s. And uh, the reason why this is so interesting is because all five of these young men were brutally murdered by the people they were trying to reach with the gospel. Jim Elliott was born in 1927, and he was moved by the Spirit to go and reach this people that had yet been unreached. And so he had gotten with these other young men and they had done some reconnaissance, so to speak, and tried to find out as much information as they could. And they went to this area in Ecuador trying to reach these unreached people with the gospel. They made some inroads. They uh, were able to interact with the people uh, a little bit. Uh, the only problem was they didn't know that uh, there was a plot among these indigenous people to end this intrusion as they saw it. So they may have acted like they were trying to be friendly, but they were not. They were very much unfriendly. Jim Elliott proposed to Elizabeth Howard on her 21st birthday in 1953. Elizabeth Elliot, the, the now widow, um, they were in Ecuador. They were trying to learn Spanish. They were uh, going back to this mission field and they were intent on reaching these folks with the gospel. Their lives were cut short. Jim Elliot was killed. Um, they were surprise attacked. Uh, lured into a trap of sorts on the riverside and all five of them were speared to death. Elliot was the first to die and the other four and they found their bodies later down the river a bit. All for the sake of the gospel. And you might ask yourself, this young man was 28 years old when he was killed. And you might ask yourself, why on earth would you do such a thing? Why would you risk your life why would you make this your goal and purpose to go and reach people with the gospel 
who were not receptive whatsoever. And yet still, I'm going to learn your language, I'm going to study your culture, I'm going to do everything I can to express my compassion for you in the name of Jesus and try to tell you about the one and only way to get to heaven, to find forgiveness. Why would you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's a a good reason why you might do that. It's because Jesus saves. Jesus loves. Jesus cares. Jesus is our example. Jesus has set forth a commission for His church to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, Matthew's gospel records. And sometimes that is really difficult. Sometimes it's not just as simple as, well, I'm going to speak to this person at the service station, or I'm going to speak to this co-worker, or I'm going to have this really awkward conversation with this family member, because I know they need Jesus. And if they don't hear about Jesus and hear the gospel, and if they don't repent and believe in Jesus, they're going to hell. And that's the truth. So, how much do we really believe that truth? How motivated are we by that truth to where it would actually affect our actions? A pastor once said, You believe no more of the Bible than you obey. That hurts my feelings. Because every time I disobey, it makes me reflect and question how strong are my convictions? How much do I really believe? If it's it's not causing me to change my lifestyle or my actions, how much do I really believe this stuff? Because we're going to read just four verses of Scripture today, but they are so profound and so powerful And as we read, I want you to be thinking about these three things. These are not the points of the message. These are just simply three questions that I hope we'll consider when we hear this Scripture. How did Jesus see the people? How did He see the people? How did Jesus feel about the people? And then what did Jesus do? about these people. How did Jesus see? How did He feel? What did He do? And as we consider those questions as we read this text, I believe we would have to be monumentally not paying attention to see what Jesus tells us to do. Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 35. The text is on the screen as well if you'd like to follow along. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest 
to send out workers into his harvest. Father, I pray today in Jesus' name that you would speak clearly to our hearts, help us understand, and strengthen us to obey. Lord, we know if, if you do nothing, nothing will be done. So we pray you would use us for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. This text, I think you probably, many of you may have heard it before, may have read it before, maybe many times. But we consider these three questions in these four little verses. How did Jesus see the people? How did Jesus feel about the people? What did Jesus do about the people? Or maybe more to the point, what did He tell us to do about the people? Maybe that's what we need to consider. So you look at this text, there's four verses, it's actually very clearly split into two, uh, two sections. The first thing we should know is this. We've got to see the condition of the lost. We've got to see. Not just look. We've got to see. There's a difference. Jesus had this standard operating procedure as He traveled. And you read verse 35 and it outlines very clearly Matthew records this for us. It's so simple, but very profound. He would regularly teach in the synagogues. He would regularly proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. He would regularly heal the sick and diseased. That's what he did. Everywhere he went, that's what he did. Jesus had this continual process of comprehensive activity. And I'll tell you... Um, it's interesting that you know how I you know how I preach, you know how expository preaching goes, you know how we work through books of the Bible and try to read everything in context so that we might understand it as clearly as possible, so we can uh, use those truths and apply these things to our lives and live out the life that God gives us in a way that honors Him and helps others. And so this, this particular passage of Scripture, it's, just, it's the next paragraph. I didn't choose this for today. And yet, the last day of youth camp this week, guess what Scripture pops up on the screen on our last morning devotion? Matthew 9, verses 36 to 38. This is the compassion of Jesus in action. And I thought to myself, you have got to be kidding me. We registered for this week of camp a year ago. I started preaching through the Gospel of Matthew last December. I just happened to be on this paragraph today. And we're at camp and this scripture pops up on the screen because that's the last day of devotions. And that meant something to me. It, it encouraged me that we're, we're on to something here. As Jesus was doing these things, this was His standard way of doing things. He had a plan. It was purposeful. And so, it got me thinking about how do we see people? We, everybody sees things differently, right? We all have different perspectives. right? And so, you could have 
multiple people looking at the same thing, but still see it a little differently, right? It would be nuanced. Everybody has a perspective. And some people might think, well, that's, okay, that's not, um, that's not great, because then how do you know what's the truth? Like, say all these witnesses line up and have to testify in court, but their testimonies are just you know, a little bit different from one another. They have the same basic gist, but there's some differences. Well, there's a gentleman named uh, J. Warner Wallace, who is an attorney who uh, is very skilled at picking apart witnesses' testimony. And he was an atheist who came to Christ because of his investigation of the gospel, trying to pick it apart. And he was interviewed about what are the problems here with, with the gospel truth if all these witness accounts are not exactly the same. And you know what he said? He said, no, that just makes the story more true. He said, if everybody had the exact same story, then it would obviously seem rehearsed and planned like it's not really the truth, but we've got to get our story straight, right? It's like when three boys are out messing around doing something they shouldn't be doing and they get caught, and they, what do they do? They huddle up before they have to talk to their parents. They say, all right, let's get our story together. Let's make sure we all have the same thing, right? Well, that shows the deception. But when the witness accounts are similar but not the same, that strengthens the truth of the testimony. And so when we see uh, the way people see things differently, we can also tell that, okay, this, is, this has got some truth to it. And so when Jesus sees the people, we have to try to see the people the same way Jesus saw the people. And Jesus always saw the people. He didn't just look at people. He didn't just uh, glance and then move on. He saw the people. He noticed the circumstances. He noticed the needs of the people. He felt compassion for the people. So there's our questions that we're considering, right? How did Jesus see the people? He saw everything. He saw their circumstances. He saw their needs. He saw their troubles. He saw their condition. But how did He feel? He had compassion. When you read these first two verses, especially verse 36, the Bible says, seeing the people, he felt compassion. So you see, in this particular instance, we don't have to speculate. We don't have to wonder, well, I wonder how that made Jesus feel. It tells us right here in Scripture. He felt compassion. And, and I need to point out, this is not just some... Uh, passing emotion. This is not just, well, I'm just, uh, oh, that, that's sad. Okay, but i got other things to do. That's not, that's not what's going on here. He was physically affected with compassion when he saw the crowds. So this is not just having pity on someone. This is, um, as Leon Morris called it, divine compassion for people. Because he was not just saddened, he was moved. He was moved to the point that he needed to do something about it. And the reason why we can tell that is because you look at the words in verse 36. They were distressed. They were dispirited. The, the literal translation there is they're thrown down. Thrown down. Some of your English translations may say they were cast down. That, that's what that means. They were in terrible shape. And then look at the last phrase here. This is really helpful to give us an understanding. They were like sheep without a shepherd. 
And we've talked about this before. A shepherd has several jobs, right? Several responsibilities. What does a shepherd do for the sheep? He protects the sheep. He leads the sheep. He feeds the sheep. Makes sure they have good pasture, food and water sources. Makes sure there's no predators lurking around to jump into the flock and cause harm. But he leads them in the right direction for these things. Do you, do you recall anywhere in the Old Testament where we see a picture of this? Psalm 23. How does it start? The Lord is my shepherd. Do you remember one thing about that six-verse chapter in Psalm 23? He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. He, he's, he's giving me, He's providing. I, I, the Lord's my shepherd, so I don't want for anything. I don't have any unmet needs. He's a good shepherd. These people have no shepherd. They have no leadership. They, they have people who think they're leaders. The Pharisees, the religious establishment of the day, they're not leaders. They're just, they might as well be predators. They're causing harm, not good. They're not doing a shepherd's job. And so Jesus sees the people and He thinks, these poor people are defenseless because they don't have a shepherd to care for them. They don't have the right leadership. They don't have protection. They don't have nourishment. They don't have anything they need, which means they're vulnerable for attack. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're wounded and torn. They're helpless and harassed, cast down. You know, sheep are dumb. It kind of makes you feel bad when you think about that because you know how many times in the Bible we're referred to as sheep? <laughs> like, well, wow, what are, you, what are you saying? Yeah, well, I'm not saying it. That's what Jesus said. So, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's more accurate than we realize. So sheep without a shepherd really points to people who are in great danger with no resources for escape. It's a terrible terrible situation so if we're going to be faithful in ministry and faithful witnesses of the gospel and and doing the things God would have us do as his church we've got to see the condition of the lost but it doesn't stop there because after we see the condition we have to do something we have to obey the commission of Christ he's given us work to do so we have to see clearly so we can do properly does that make sense if we don't have a good perspective, the same perspective Jesus has, then we're never going to do the things Jesus really calls us to do. So in verses 37 and 38, you see the commission coming out. We're going to get more clarity on that when we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, as we've already kind of alluded to several times, Matthew 28, when Jesus really uh, defines that great commission. But right here, verse 37, up to this point, He's seeing... And he's feeling, but now he's speaking. Verse 37. He said to his disciples. So he, he, he paints the picture. And what does he say? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So it's not that there's no opportunity, 
right? It's not that there's not plenty of lost folks there. It's not there's, that there's people who um, there's not enough people to serve, right? Wouldn't that be an interesting problem to have? You got all these people lined up to try to help, but oh, nobody needs any help. So I guess we, you know, I guess we're done. No, it's just the opposite. You know what we saw? I, I could, I could. There's a a row of people here. It was. Uh, there's one back there in the back. There's, one, there's, there's teenagers in this room that served this week. I could ask any one of them, and I guarantee you without exception, everyone I asked would give a similar account. And it would sound something like this. You know, I always knew that there was other you know, people out there that maybe had different needs than I do or, or different situations than I do, different living circumstances, whatever. But I didn't realize that, that I could do something about it. I didn't realize I could help like I did. You know, every, every, I watched every one of them this week, and they were just, uh, it's almost like they were outside of themselves. They were laughing and smiling and playing and serving and working, telling people about Jesus in their actions and their words it was really beautiful to watch these and if you're a parent in the room of one of these then you should be you should be proud they represented Christ and his church well this week and and I you know I just can't say that enough it makes it easier to to go to worship with them and, and maybe have songs that you don't recognize as quickly and music that may be louder than you prefer to listen to sometimes. Maybe dance moves that you don't know nothing about. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what. Take all that. It's hard to beat when you see your teenagers worshiping and your teenagers with open Bibles, and your teenagers going out to a city they've never been in with people they've never been around, and they're just serving with a smile on their face. You can't put a price on that. It's beautiful. We're going back next year, by the way. Mark your calendars, July 1st through the 6th. Mark your calendars. So what does it look like to obey this commission? Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, so we, we obviously need more workers, right? So there are people who are ripe for inclusion in the kingdom of God, but there's not enough workers to bring in that crop and reap that harvest and get the gospel to where it needs to go, right? There, there's more workers needed. So what does Jesus tell His disciples to do? Verse 38, this is the most beautiful part of this story. Pray so that God would compel more workers to get involved in the harvest. Right? Plenty of work to go around. I pro Let me just say this, I promise you, if everybody in this room jumped up and said, alright, let's do it, I'm, I'm game, I'll, I'll do whatever we need to do, we're not going to run out of work. We're not going to run out of work, I promise you. There's lost people everywhere. Everywhere. And by the way, a side note of that, just kind of plug this in there. Um, we're not in competition with any other church. 
in this town, in this county, in this state, on this planet. There's enough lost people to go around for everybody. We don't have to worry about that. Okay? We don't have to worry about that. We're supposed to pray that God would compel more workers. And by the way, prayer is crucial. It's not a substitute for the work. It's part of the work. The um, folks at this camp this week, they got a t-shirt that uh, it's what we talk about all the time about mission work, how you can be involved in the mission. It says, pray, give, go. You can do one or more of those and still be equally involved in the work. Pray, give, and go. And so this is pray and then go, right? Pray, then work. Pray and work. Not pray instead of work. It's pray and work. And so the point of this that Jesus is trying to make to His disciples in a very clear way, it doesn't matter how much we work personally, we're not going to be able to get the whole harvest in without some help. It's not, it's not, it's not a, a small enough task for just a few people. It, everybody's got to get involved in some form or fashion. So Jesus tells His disciples to pray. Who are they praying to? Look at, look at the text, verse 38. Who are they praying to? The Lord of the harvest. Whose harvest is it? It's the Lord's harvest, right? Jesus saves, right? It's His harvest. But what are we? So we're praying to Him, but what are we praying? Send out workers. Send out the workers who are needed. The harvest is His, but it has to be gathered in. And the, the, the most profound part of this whole text is in verse 38 in that phrase, that word, send out. I've said this before, I believe, a few times. The Greek word that he uses there is ekbalo, which basically means to forcefully push out, send out, kick out, you know, whatever you need to do, get them out there. And so we're, we're not praying to God to impress on others, okay, now, I know this is an inconvenience, but if for some reason you've got a few minutes of spare time and it's not too much of a bother, could you please go and tell somebody about Jesus? Could you please help? Uh, but only, I mean, only if it's not too much of a, of a burden. That is not at all. That's probably the opposite of what's being said. It's a very forceful term. Pray that... Here's, here's what it might look like. I think this is a, a faithful, accurate representation of what's, what's in, in view here. Jesus is telling His disciples to pray that He would cause believers everywhere to become so unsettled and uncomfortable and miserable even until they get out and do some work, some gospel work. Like, I, I will pray. I had a, a, a preacher one time who was, he, he had, and this is a true story, he visited uh, a couple who had, well, actually the wife, had visited the church, and he went to their house to visit and follow up with her, and her husband was there, but he didn't really care anything about the church or God or any of that, which is unfortunately often the case. And so he's sitting there in their living room, and talking with the couple together, and the wife had been to the church, the husband, you know, no part of it, and he said to the husband, okay, so if it's all right with you, I'm going to be praying for you. 
And the guy was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then the pastor said, no, I don't think you understand. I'm going to be praying that God will just completely wreck your life and mess you up and cause you all kind of difficulty until you understand how much He wants a relationship with you and that you'll pay attention to what He's saying. So if, and so he actually told him this. Now, I don't know if this is um, biblical necessarily, but this is what he did. He said, so if you, you know, stuff starts messing up in your life, just know I'm praying for it. I'm praying for you to get all jacked up and then want to have to run to Jesus. And so, you know, can you imagine somebody telling you that? How you would mentally, psychologically, that's a little bit of psychological warfare right there. You know, Just know if things start going wrong in your life, I'm praying for that to happen because it means that much that you run to Jesus. Because everything in your life can be fine. You know what an unintended consequence of that is? Oh, I'm good. I don't need Jesus. Everything's going good for me. If everything in this world is going good for you, you're blinded to your deep spiritual need. And you might be fooled into thinking, now why do I need Jesus? Everything's going fine. Is it though? Deep in here? Is it really fine? Is it fine that that earthly things might be okay, but spiritually, emotionally, in a place deeper than you're willing to recognize sometimes, things are not okay. When you're alone with your thoughts and nobody's around, this, this terrible, empty, unsettled brokenness. And Jesus is the only one who can fix it. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send out, compel workers into the harvest. There's people everywhere who need Jesus. We saw a lot of them this week. Children who are, are coming to a community center from homes that are terrible. Children and an apartment complex, this is just, I'm speaking from my own personal experience, I don't, can't speak for the other groups. Children from four years old to 17 years old coming out to the central little courtyard area of this apartment complex because they see a church bus pull up and there's a bunch of crazy teenagers out there playing all kinds of games and they want to come out. And when we go around the entire apartment complex to knock on doors and, and basically ask permission, would you mind sending your kids out so they can, we want to just play, you know. We're going to be right here. And without exception... I take that back. There was one exception where I was. One exception. One parent, one mom came out with her kids. Every other one. Yeah, y'all go ahead. Shut the door. Go back inside. None, none of them ever seen me before. None of them ever seen those teenagers before. But... And some of them were sitting out on stoops, maybe walked by here and there, but the majority just detached. Just, I'm going to stay in here and do my, what I'm going to do. Yeah, if you want to go, go ahead. 
run across the parking lot. You know, just go play with these strangers. There are great needs everywhere. So part of our ministry, knock on doors, try to engage parents, try to get them to send their kids so we can play with them and minister to them and help them. But then, before we leave, groups everywhere praying for all the adults, praying for the people in the apartments, praying that they would come to know Jesus, that something we did or said uh, maybe would point them in that direction. The harvest needs workers. So let me just um, try to tie this up here. I talked about Jim Elliott at the beginning. And uh, i got a couple of things, but before I get to the end, uh, one thing that Jim Elliott said before he died, he said, our young men are going into other fields because they don't feel called to the mission field. We don't need a call, we need a kick in the pants. This is the 28-year-old missionary who was killed trying to share the gospel. So, it makes you wonder. You know, when we read this text, we read the, 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 the words and we understand the principles and, and we start to understand. I, I want to read you something from David Turner who's a, a great New Testament scholar. He said, the most important theme of Matthew chapters 5 through 9 in general and of chapter 9, 35 to 38 in particular is all Christological. In other words, it's about Jesus. He says, as Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus' words and deeds epitomize the character and compassion of His Father in heaven. His ethical teaching and His compassionate acts exemplify the values and the power of of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus speaks of the need for additional workers. So, everything about Jesus is showing us what we need to do and who we need to be, but He still needs more people to go out there and do that and be that. We need more people involved in the gospel ministry. So, what does all this have to to show us today. What, what's our takeaway? On October 28, 1949, you see that picture on the screen? That is a picture of the personal journal of Jim Elliott. This was written um, five and a half years before he would be killed. October 28, 1949. And the first two lines, I don't know if you can see it, but uh, this is what it says. One of the great blessings of heaven is the appreciation of heaven on earth. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That is uncommon wisdom for a 28-year-old man. When he wrote that, he was... 24, maybe even 23. But he had a very clear picture 
of what Jesus was calling him to do. Calling him to go wherever, whenever, however, to whomever with the gospel for the glory of God. I'm going to take the name of Jesus to folks who have never heard it. And at whatever cost, even if it's my life, I'm taking the gospel to people who need to hear the gospel. So this is the question for us. Where are we on that spectrum? Are we at that point or somewhere prior to that? And how do we get closer to that point? We have to answer those questions that I mentioned at the very beginning. How did Jesus see the people? How did Jesus feel about the people? What did Jesus do about the people? If we don't ever see it, then we won't ever feel it. If we don't feel it, we certainly won't ever do it. And then we'll have to answer for what went wrong. Why didn't we see? Why didn't we feel? Why didn't we do? We've been entrusted with the greatest message known to mankind. The only message that will deliver us from our sinfulness into the forgiveness of God. It is worth sharing at any cost. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.